You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary South. We exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission by seeing the lost redeemed, the redeemed matured, and the matured multiplied for the glory of Jesus Christ. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarysouth.com. I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 John. We're going to be going to chapter 2 here this morning. If you don't have a Bible in your hands, we would love for you to have one. So just reach out, put your hand up. We would love to bring you God's Word so that you have it in your hands at all times. And if you don't have one at home, take that as our gift to you. But 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. I'm going to turn there myself. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. Well, one of the great joys that we have as a church, a church that is full of little babies and little children, is being able to watch them grow and observe their unique traits and their characteristics that they pick up from their parents. Just thinking about our families here, like we, I think you can recognize a weeb girl, one of the weeb girls. Even the secondary weebs is kind of an inside joke, but the secondary weebs, we can recognize their children as well. And the Nymans and the Lupos kids, the Nyman clan, all the families out there, you can recognize whose kids are whose because they share a lot of the characteristics and the marks of their parents and who they belong to, especially as they grow. And I say especially as they grow because every time there's a new baby and Kim and I go and visit the new baby in the church or any new baby for that matter, uh, we'll often come in there and Kim will ask me, so who do you think this little one looks like? And for me, it's just, I'm just thinking it looks like a baby, right? They, you know, for the most part, they, they all look the same, but as they get older, you start to see the parents' characteristics come out. You get to see, you know, when, when they talk and when they express themselves, you can see their parents as they grow older. I mean, when Landon was, was born, we were pretty convinced that uh, he looked like my dad. But as he grew older, he started looking a lot more like um, Kim's family. But isn't that the way it goes, that when babies grow and they fill out, they grow some hair, and uh, they begin smiling and talking and expressing themselves, it just becomes more apparent who they resemble to the point that people can meet them with certainty and say with certainty, man, you, you look like your mom or, or you look like your dad. I know whose kid you are. Well, as we turn in the book of 1 John today, as this book is a mirror of authenticity for us to go to, can those around us say the same thing when it comes to who we belong to? Just by looking at us and looking at our actions, looking at the way that we talk and express ourselves Would they say that we are growing up to look more and more like our Father in heaven, reflecting his image all the more in this earth? Let me ask you, as you look into the mirror, what characteristics of God are being reflected in you? As you grow up in your faith, are you resembling him all the more? So as John is writing this book so that we may know that we have eternal life Friends, the question behind all of this is how can we know we know? How can we have certainty and assurance that we are truly the children of God? Well, today as we look at chapter 2, verses 1 to 6, the title of the sermon is, is How Do You Know You Know? How do you know that you are an authentic follower of Jesus Christ? Well, as we receive the word from the Lord here this morning that he has for us. We're going to apply this deeply by asking ourselves three questions of self-examination. 
Three questions of self-examination which should help us to know that we know. And so let's go to God's Word, chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. As John is writing to the church, he writes, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we we come to you covered in the righteousness of Christ, filled by your spirit, this priesthood of believers that you have called out of the darkness. That as you rose from the grave, you have also risen us from the grave. We get to celebrate you this morning in resurrection power. We get to come before you with your holy word open before us. That is, it is inerrant, it is sufficient for all of life and godliness. And Father, as we look again to the book of 1 John, we know that you, by your spirit, wrote this book through John. You wrote it to your church. You wrote it to us. And we pray that as we, as we apply this, this theme of authenticity, the real thing, the genuine thing, Father, we pray for that in our life. We pray for that in our own hearts. We pray that we would grow in authenticity as we reflect your glory, as we reflect your name in this world. And so as we turn again to your word here this morning, only you can do the deep work of God. Only you can transform that heart. And so we pray as your word goes forth, that it would go forth in power, that you would move me aside, my opinions, my ideas, but that your word would go forth in power, that it would impact the heart. Again, giving us eyes to see, ears to hear the glory of Jesus Christ. And as we behold your glory, may we be changed. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. How do you know you know? Well, as last week we learned about how authenticity begins by measuring ourselves against the truly authentic one, God himself. Remember, he is radiantly pure. He is the radiantly pure and righteous standard. Last week we learned that God is light and that if we were to be walking in the light, we are to be walking in him. We are to be walking in confession, walking in the light of who God is. Last week we talked about what a true biblical understanding is of sin and that we as his children are to be sin confessors, not sin deniers. And so we talked a lot about the reality of sin last week, but today as we turn to verses 1 and 2 here, as we start out, moving from the reality of sin, John is now going to highlight the solution to sin. That as last week we were to be confessing our sin and as, as God is faithful and just to, to forgive us our sins, we are to truly understand the depth and the breadth 
of what Christ has done for us to forgive us of our sins. And that all comes through the atoning work through his life, through his death, as we're going to look at here today, through his propitiation. And so the first question of self-examination here this morning that we need to be asking ourselves from verse 1 and 2 is, are we rightly embracing his propitiation? Are we rightly embracing his propitiation? So looking at verse 1 and 2, we see John say here, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. The Father, to the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So as John has been communicating throughout this book already, it all starts with Christ, right? It all starts with his perfect standard. It all starts with who he is. And this morning, what we're going to see is that it all starts through what Christ has done. And John begins by saying, my little children, which just enforces how much he loves the church. This address to the church is an endearing address that he loves them dearly. But with that as well, I also think there's a connotation of of youngness of this church, a youthfulness of this church, as John would be their, their elder, their older in the faith. Yes, John loves them, but also what we're seeing here is that they are still young in their faith, that they still need to be growing. They need to be growing in the likeness of God, their Father. Anybody here still need to be growing in the likeness of Christ? Nobody has arrived at perfection yet? No. We all need to be growing and maturing in Jesus Christ. So John says, my little children. My little children, he says. He says, I'm writing these things to you. So he's writing it to the church, but he's also writing it to us by extension. To us, his church, God's church. And he's talking about, largely about what he already spoke about. Namely, the assurance that comes through confession. I'm writing these things to you so that, so that you may not sin. That there is a connection between the assurance of forgiveness and its effect on sin. That assurance actually results in less sin, not more sin, right? Contrary to the false teachers of that time, If we have more assurance of of who we are in Christ, it shouldn't result in more sin. It should result in less sin. So true assurance should be resulting in less sin. And Paul is saying, I'm writing, or Paul, John is writing and saying, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But then as John says, but if anyone does sin, Right? He's, he's saying, I'm writing so you don't sin. But if anyone does sin, what we're seeing here is, is John is a realist. John is not an idealist. John is a realist, right? The intent is so that we don't sin, but the reality is, is that we will sin. As God is the standard, and as he is the perfect standard, the reality is, is that people, his people, will fall short that we will sin even though we are forgiven. So instead of teaching that the reality of any sin in our life just means that, that 
We have fallen off again. Life is a waste. It's useless to even try. Every time I sin, I'm, I'm losing it here. John is starting out by teaching and reminding the church that the work of Christ is finished. The work of Christ is done. That we are forgiven and cleansed because why? Because we have, as he says right here, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Friends, because of our fallen anthropology, our assurance can only begin with an exalted Christology. And so again, just as John has done already throughout this letter, he starts with exalting the very person of Jesus Christ, and specifically, he starts out with exalting the very work of Christ. And he's going to show us here, just in this first section, three crucial aspects of Christ's atonement. Number one, that Jesus is our advocate. That number two, Jesus is our righteousness. And number three, Jesus is our propitiation. Friends, the only way that you, can, you and I can confidently come to, to God in confession and knowing our forgiveness is by knowing that it's all because of the finished work of Christ. That we are forgiven, that we are cleansed. How? Well, John is saying it starts with Christ's advocacy here. And then his righteousness and his propitiation. So it, and so as the Bible uses these terms, we have to define these terms. And so we're going to start out with advocate. Friends, friends, to be an advocate from the, the Greek word parakletos is used in this sense as it was used in the ancient times. It has legal connotations to it. To be an advocate in the society at that time is to be a person who acts as a spokesperson, a person who acts as a representative of another person, especially when it comes to defending yourself. For example, in those days, if you were to stand before a judge in a court of law, in order to effectively defend yourself, you would call upon an advocate or an intercessor to stand up for you and to speak for you. Somebody who is going to plead your case, which is very much the same that goes on in our modern court systems today. Right? We call upon legal counsel to defend our cause as we stand before a judge or a jury. And so as John is using this terminology here, what he is saying about Jesus is that Jesus is the one who stands for our defense. That he is the one who intercedes for us to the Father. That if we sin... Jesus is the one who pleads our case. He's not defending us in the sense that we are innocent, but he is defending us on the basis of his finished work, that the penalty has been paid. Right? Just as Paul testifies in Romans 8, 34, he says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. He's being our advocate. That's the same sense going on here. But as Jesus is now exalted to the right hand of the Father, his role right now in his redemptive work for us is to be our active advocate right now, just as Hebrews 7.25 says. Consequently, he is able... 
to save to the uttermost, right? That's thoroughly save us and thoroughly sanctify us. Those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So friends, as John is talking about this, what he is saying and what the New Testament declares is that right now, for the true believer, the authentic believer, Christ's saving work isn't just a past action to point ourselves to, but that it is also a present reality to rest ourselves in. That Jesus right now, like not just back then, but right now, that means every second of every day, he is standing between us and our great judge, our heavenly father, and Jesus right now is interceding for us. That as the father would look down to us, he doesn't see sin, but rather he sees Jesus interceding for us. He is our advocate. Now we need to be careful how we understand this. We need to be careful to understand what this doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that there's something else was needed in order to save us beyond Christ's cross and, and resurrection. It doesn't mean that as Jesus said, it's finished, that it really wasn't finished. That somehow his sacrifice was insufficient. No, it doesn't mean that at all. No, no, what it means is that his interceding and advocating work is an application, an application of what he has already finished. We need to understand this as an application of Christ's finished work already. That God not only saves, but he also sanctifies. If you remember in our book, Gentle and Lowly from Dane Ortland that we read a year ago, he said this, he said, the atonement accomplished, or sorry, the atonement accomplished our salvation, but intercession is the moment by moment application of that atoning work, right? That is, we were saved in the past, his present and future refining work is being applied through his ongoing intercession again of what he already accomplished. So we need to think about the wonder in all of that. We need to think about how we're often so prone to think about what Christ has done and, and maybe we don't think so much about what he's doing right now. We need to, we need to think how that should inform the way that we think and, the, and that we worship. This should be a refreshed gratitude and, and thankfulness for what Christ Jesus is doing right now as he is advocating for us. I don't think we, we, we think about that enough. And that was one of the points of Gentle and Lowly, the book, was to get our eyes on what Christ is doing right now. Now as John also gives Jesus the title here next as Jesus Christ the Righteous, Number two, what we need to learn about him is that he is our righteousness. Friends, the only reason that Jesus can intercede for us and take us with him into the presence of the Father is because Jesus is the truly righteous one. And he alone is truly righteous. Right? We just need to look in the mirror for, for a few moments and just realize how unrighteous we really are. 
We needed righteousness from somebody else in order to stand in the presence of God. That as Jesus is the eternally righteous, he is the one that came down from heaven. He is the one that put on human flesh in the likeness of sinful flesh, as Romans 8.3 talks about. Jesus is the only human to ever walk this earth without ever committing even one sin. That as Hebrews 4.15 says, in every respect, right, he was tempted as we are, but yet without sin. Friends, Christ not only died to forgive us of our sins, but he also lived to give us his righteousness on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, right? Jesus knew no sin, absolutely righteous, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Peter carries that on as well. He said, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. You even see the interceding going on there. Jesus is bringing us into the presence of God. Only he can do that. And then he was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. Friends, that is the righteous one and the only righteous one. And he is our advocate before the Father that as the Father would then look upon you, who does he see but Jesus Christ? And what he sees is Christ's righteousness applied to us. As we are found in him, his righteousness covers us and that's what God the Father sees. That's the only way we can come into the presence of God. Friends, we will never be good enough on our own. But Jesus was. Right? Where, where we failed, Jesus Christ prevailed. That's the kind of advocate we have. He's not just some average Joe interceding for us. He is the righteous, pure standard that is interceding for us, our righteous advocate. And then John also adds that he is the propitiation for our sin, right? And he says, not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. Friends, as we don't use the word propitiation much in our everyday language, this comes from the Greek word halasmos. It's being translated propitiation here. It's also used in three other places in the Bible in the New Testament. But this word speaks about the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That as without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, Jesus is the only acceptable sacrifice. Remember the Old Testament talking about spotless lambs, the continual sacrifice of, of lambs, the spilling of blood for the remission of sins. Jesus is the spotless lamb. He is the only pure, righteous spotless lamb and it was by his blood alone that the wrath of God could ever be satisfied that as Jesus hung on the cross in our place he again is the only righteous one he is the only one that could absorb the wrath of God upon himself which should have been placed upon you and upon me and that as John says here, he is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Friends, his propitiation is, isn't just enough for you. 
His propitiation is enough for anyone across this whole wild, whole wide world who would repent and believe. Right? His propitiatory sacrifice is enough. His, his blood is enough to cover all the sins of all who would come to Jesus Christ. And so what John is really highlighting here is a three-dimensional gospel. That we have a Christ whose righteous life was perfectly lived out for us. That we have a Christ whose atoning work is, is perfectly finished for us. And that right now, we have a Christ who is perfectly advocating for us. Therefore, if we do sin, as he says, we have the assurance we have the assurance of that forgiveness. We have the assurance of that cleansing because of what Christ has finished for us. So friends, it all starts out with Jesus. It all starts out with what he has done. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we embracing his propitiation? And are we rightly embracing his propitiation? You know, I grew up in a church going to Sunday school, going to youth group attending church my whole life. But I never understood this stuff. I never really understood the big picture of salvation. Now, as I was taught that, yes, Jesus died for my, my sins, I never really knew what that meant. I never really knew how that worked. It wasn't until I was an adult when I, I started listening to faithful preaching and faithful teaching that I really came to an awareness of, of how Christ's sacrifice really saves people. It's not just about some kind of magic prayer that I prayed. I don't get saved because I try to clean myself up and do better and look the part. No, salvation came through him actually taking my place. Him taking my wrath, the wrath that I was storing up, the wrath that I deserved. And then he comes and he takes my death. He even takes my hell upon him. The hell that I deserved. He takes that upon himself and from him through such love. That's not the end of it. Through that, he also gives us his righteousness. He declares me righteous, not guilty anymore. This is that whole idea of the righteous for the unrighteous so that I can then truly be reconciled and at peace with God. I didn't grow up knowing that. I grew up with the gospel of somebody saying, you need to ask Jesus into your heart. I didn't really know what that meant, but I needed to ask him into my heart. Also, you know, just just knowing that he died for my sins. It's, it's a good thing, and it's, and it's real, and it's, it's a huge reality, but not really understanding how it worked. The righteous for the unrighteous. Friends, salvation is not a magic trick. No, Jesus really had to pay the price. And we have to just absolutely love the fact that even now, even now, Christ is working Right now, he is interceding for us. And he's interceding for sinners across this whole planet. And the question is, is do we believe that and are we rightly understanding that? Are we embracing that? Because that's what it's all about. 
As John is teaching that this is essential for the church to really understand and embrace, he then turns to the church, he's turning to us and basically says, what about you? What about us? Like if this is true, and it is, the effect of all of this in our lives ought to bring some real transformation. And he's gonna go into that here in verse three and four as he says, and by this we know that we have come to know him. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Friends, how can we know that we know? Well, along with asking ourselves whether we truly understand and embrace Christ's propitiation, what we're also seeing here is that we need to examine ourselves. And we need to ask ourselves this question of self-examination, are we really growing in obedience? Are you really growing in obedience? As John says, by this we know that we have come to know him. By this he means if we keep his commandments. Friends, where are you at with your obedience to Jesus? Where you're at with your obedience to Jesus speaks volumes about your relationship with Jesus. To know God in the scriptures speaks not merely about having a head knowledge of God, just knowing some right facts about him. It's about having a heart knowledge of him. But it's about a real covenant relational connection to God. And what John is teaching here is that the proof that that connection is revealed is revealed in how we respond to his commandments. Now, commandments here will probably initially remind us about the Ten Commandments, and that's good. The Big Ten are, are definitely the commandments for sure. That's right, that's good. But with that, John is also referring to Christ's commandments, as he says here, his commandments, or looking down, his word. In fact, if you look down to verse seven and eight, it reveals that he's really talking about both old commandments and new commandments. Really meaning, friends, that how we approach the commandments of Scripture and the commandments of Christ, this is the commandments that he's talking about. It's really what the Word of God is commanding upon our hearts. And through this, as we self-examine and see where we're at in this, it's, it's supposed to be revealing, as he says here, where we stand with Jesus. So again, it says, by this we know that we have come to know him, right, in real covenant connection, if we keep his commandments, right? That's the totality of the commands of the Bible. But then in the negative, John says in verse 4, whoever says, again, when we're thinking about the false teaching, there was false teaching, a false view of sin, right? Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. So very much the same that we focused on last week when it came to denying sin, the new angle we see John going for here is how we know the Lord. If we're claiming to know the Lord, it's going to affect the way 
that we respond. So friends, like I said last week, how we respond to Christ is going to either validate or invalidate that which we say we believe. And in this case here, it's related to how we claim to know Jesus, how we claim to know God. Now, friends, let me ask you about authority. Let me ask you, how do you feel about authority? Like even when I just say the word authority, how does that make you feel? What does your heart initially do with the idea of authority? I think one thing that we're experiencing in society today is that in general, respect for authority is waning. That as the older generations were once more willing to respect and honor those in authority over them, the generations to follow, me included, are are much less likely to follow in their footsteps. In fact, the younger generations today are are more skeptical and and tight-fisted with those who they respect. I recently read an article by a young Christian woman who basically said that respect today isn't just automatically given to those who wear a badge, to somebody who puts on a uniform representing authority, nor do younger people just automatically respect or honor someone based on their age or their position of authority. No, respect today, according to this article, is that respect has to be earned first. Like no matter who they are, whether they be a teacher or a police officer or a civic leader or maybe even a pastor, they don't just get respect because of their position. They have to earn that respect. They don't want to just submit to their leadership because of their position, nor do they follow their instruction and direction just because someone in authority said so. Now, I I think I can understand how we have arrived here, as many in leadership over the ages here have lost a lot of credibility, especially in recent years. That's for sure. So I get that. But friends, the, the challenge with approaching authority in this way is that it not only applies to the world, but it's increasingly becoming a challenge in the church. It is becoming a challenge to people as they approach God in his authority and the authority of his word. Many professing believers, those who say they know Jesus, are approaching the authority of God and his word with skepticism, with hesitation, and even with disrespect. There's a tendency today to lower God God in our minds. God has become more of a peer And they've also lowered the authority and the veracity of his word, specifically when it comes to what he calls and he commands what is good and what is sin to the point that we are ignoring what is so clearly commanded in the scriptures. We're starting to undermine the authority of the Bible. I mean, we see this clearly when it comes to churches that that are softening when it comes to the word of God. They're turning away from the word of God. They're even apologizing for some of the harder things that are revealed in scripture. They're apologizing for some things that are, that are harder to understand, but that God clearly lays out as his will and his way. Even within the church, people are lowering, lowering what they believe about, let's say, church discipline for one thing. Things that, uh, that are very clear to God, like how about 
uh, roles that the genders are, are to called to play in the family and in the church. Just think about the sexual confusion that's even being embraced by the church today. I just heard about a church in Ontario that comes from a, a predominantly evangelical denomination in Canada, very well-known denomination, but everybody on the staff of this church is of the LGBTQ community. This is a denomination that, that years ago started taking some slippery steps towards egalitarianism and is now even talking about removing the statements of inerrancy and sufficiency from their statement of faith. There's a tendency today to just want to rub off the hard edges of the faith to make it more palatable to the world. And in turn, they're ignoring the clear commands of Scripture. But yet they are still claiming to know Jesus. My friends, according to the Bible, according to John here, the apostle, he is the one here with Holy Spirit wrought authority. He is one who was handpicked as an apostle by Jesus Christ. What he's saying to his church and what he's saying to us is no matter your generation is that what the, the word of the Lord commands, the word of the Lord stands. What the Lord forbids doesn't change by the whims of culture or outside influence. And that the proof that you can claim to really know Jesus is proven in how we approach his word, his authority, his commands. In fact, throughout Scripture, God calls his people to obey him, to obey his commands. Because why? Because he is God. He is the ultimate authority. Leviticus twenty-two thirty-one. So you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord. Chapter 19, verse 37 of Leviticus. And you shall observe all my statutes and all my rules and do them. Why? I am the Lord. Now, yes, it's good to know the why. It's good to understand God's command, commandments and why he's giving those for sure. And God gives the why behind all of his commands throughout the Bible. But friends, the fact that he is God is enough. The fact that he is the ultimate authority is enough. Why? Because he's the one who created it all. He's the one who owns it all. He's the one who sustains it all. And he is the judge over what is right and what is wrong in this world. And that even in light of our own sin and obedience, the beauty in all of this is that he so graciously and lovingly enters into a knowing covenant relationship with his people. That in light of all of his authority, he offers a saving relationship that we don't deserve, but yet he so freely and mercifully gives. And so friends, following him, obeying him, submitting to his will and his way, his command, is our only proper response to the covenant connection that we have with God. Even as Jesus himself says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll do what? You will keep my commandments. And so we hear that. We receive that. We get it. And we believe it. Even though we know how hard it is. Right? When we hear the words, keep my commandments, we just know 
that as hard as we can try, we could never keep his commandments. We'll always fail. Now again, remember, John's theology isn't a theology about perfection. No, John is not an idealist. No, John is a realist. He knows that we can't follow God perfectly. He knows that we, well, we're going to constantly sin. He knows that we can't keep every command in Scripture. Only one person ever did, Jesus Christ. And that's what he was showing us at the start, our propitiation. And so what we understand here is that although he's not commanding perfection from his people, what he is emphasizing is that there needs to be obedience marking our lives. And there has to be a growing obedience marking our lives. That we are not to be marked by walking in darkness from chapter 1, but that we are to be walking in the light as evidenced by keeping Christ's commands that we are growing in obedience to God. That what we once found ourselves just so freely giving ourselves to, that now there is actual spiritual fruit growing in our lives. That self-control is actually being engaged. That as sin used to come so readily in certain areas in my life, now it is so much more less than it once was. I mean, just think about those things that were once so enslaving to you. Think about those sins that were mastering over you. Think about the sins that were devouring your heart. And now, think how over the course of time with walking with the Lord and growing in his word, you're actually experiencing a growing victory over that area of sin in your life. These are things we need to celebrate. Maybe, for example, it's how you used to disrespect and disobey your parents. Maybe you were given to much anger and hostility. Maybe you were a person who even hated other people in your words. But now think about how you have a new growing love and honor for those people. Think about maybe how you once had such a crippling fear and life of anxiety. But now you have found so much more contentment and peace in God's will and God's way. Now again, you may not be totally free from this, but you should be growing in it. Think about how maybe at one time you would so easily lie and boast or cheat or gossip, how you would so readily give yourself to the vices of this world. Just think about the substances and sinful practices we involve ourselves with, but yet now you look back and see how far God has removed you from that place. Think about how Christ can actually free you from the sin of drunkenness or addiction, or lust, or idolatry, or just far too many things that we, we can talk about today, or those things that consume our every thought and intention of our heart. Right? We could name them all here this morning, but this comes down to you examining your own life. And the question is, is can you see the grace of God growing you more and more in obedience? So are we keeping his commands? Are we growing in keeping his commands? John says, by this we can know that we have come to know him. We can know that we know Jesus. If your progression is obedience, 
Now, just thinking about that, thinking about your life as you look back, is that line in a direction of growth or is it flatlining? Or is it in a digression? I mean, we have to be doing some of this examination to really see where we are. Is our life characterized by walking in darkness? If we are, then we are lying and the truth is not in us. Friends, the grace of God even in this is that he loves you enough to warn you. He loves you enough to tell you the truth. You know, sometimes when it comes to the faith, we've been brought up in some really weak theology, depending on your background. Or we've been brought up with some very little theology, like my background. We don't truly study the word for all it's worth. And therefore, we don't know the truth. And in the end, we really don't know Jesus. It may be because we have a faulty version of the gospel that was told to you. Maybe you were told, like I was, that all you need to do is say a prayer and you're in. You need to walk an aisle, raise a hand, sign your name on that date in your Bible. But there was nothing much about truly following Jesus and obeying Jesus. So friends, what John is, is saying, he's saying to all of us, to know Jesus is to obey him. The fruit reveals the root. Are we really growing in obedience? Now with true salvation, John also highlights next that with growing obedience to Jesus, there should also be a growing likeness of Jesus. Which leads to our third question of self-examination here this morning, which is this. Are you truly looking more like Jesus? Verse 5. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And so John continues on this theme of keeping. And this time he says keeping his word. Whose word? The word of Christ. What Christ is commanding. That it is in those, in him, those who keep his word, that truly, he says, truly the love of God is perfected. Now if you were trying to to sum up the, the word or commands of Christ, what do you think that would be? If we're talking about Christ's commands and Christ's word and keeping those, what is that talking about? Well, as Jesus himself was asked by the Pharisees, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus answered them in Matthew 22, 37 to 40. He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And so Christ says, ever so clearly and boldly, that the word of God, the command of God, can be summed up by love. Love for God, love for others. That these are the summation of the law, the word, the law and the prophets. And so we see that this is his word, his command. And as we try to understand it, what he means here by keeping his word, he's saying that it comes down to love. And so that would be why John says, those who keep this in him truly, the love of God is perfected or completed. Friends, to have the love of Jesus being more and more perfected or completed in our lives is to look more and more like Jesus. So as God is love, we are growing in love. 
This is a verification that we are truly in his love. As Jesus himself said in, in John chapter 15, verse 8 to 10, he said, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So there's a massive connection between keeping God's word and loving God himself. And so, friends, we need to examine ourselves, asking ourselves, where's this fruit that proves that we are his disciples. The fruit of love, as Jesus says, is that we're abiding in God's love. We're embracing his commands. Do we love God more and more? Are we loving his word? Are we seeing his glory? Are we loving his beauty? Are we seeing his grace towards us? And through that, do we love him more and more? And is this being proven in how then we love other people? Do we love others more than we love ourselves? Think about your family. Think about your spouse. Think about your children and your parents, your siblings. Think about your friends and your coworkers, your peers, your neighbors, even your bosses. Think about the stranger on the street, the unbeliever across the train from you, the downcast, the poor, the rejected, are we counting others as more significant than ourselves? Are we truly caring and communing with each other here, his church? And are we seeking to love those outside of the church? Loving God, loving others. And so as love is being more and more completed in us, it just reveals that we are truly abiding and walking with Jesus, that we are becoming more and more like him. As John concludes the section, he says, by this we may know that we are in him, right? We can know that we know. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. I remember someone saying to one of my sons, you walk just like your dad, right? Just, they could just tell by the gait and the stride of one of my sons that he is my son. Friends, the characteristics and likeness that we reflect will truly reveal the one whom you are following. To walk in the same way that Christ walked is to walk in the light as God is the light. To walk in love as God is love. To walk in obedience as Christ himself walked in obedience. To walk with Christ is to, to walk in holiness. When it came to Jesus, the very Son of God, the way that he walked, the way that he lived his life, perfectly reflected his Father in heaven as he would testify in John 5.30. He said, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Or in John 6.38, he says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, the will of his Father. Just as he taught us to pray, right? Not our will, but your will, Father, be done. Friends, Christ 
lived to walk and abide with his father. And he reflected his father's image perfectly in this world. He is the exact imprint. John 8, 28 to 29, he said, I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the father taught me. And he who sent me is with me, right? He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Friends, Jesus reflected the Father perfectly for us. In his life was Coram Deo. If you ever heard of what Coram Deo means in the, in the Latin, it means to live in light of the presence of God. That as we abide in God and as he abides with us, we reflect his glory. We reflect his character. That as, as we walk, the world should see God. That as Jesus walked so perfectly, the world so perfectly saw God. And it was exampled in how he walked. As he would say, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. I and the Father are one. Whoever sees me sees him who sent me. And so friends, as we think about this and how this command is upon our life to walk like Jesus, again, we're not going to do this perfectly. But then because of that, we're still no less called to walk in Christ's perfect example as our standard. That he is the means, he is the motivation, that as, that as he says, we are to abide in him, we are to walk in the same way in which he walked. And so friends, it's more than what we just say. It's more than what we just claim. No, we're called to look into the mirror of God's word and as we do that, we ask ourselves, what is that reflection looking like that's staring back? What does his word here truly reveal about what's going on inside, on the inside? What does our behavior, our characteristics say about who our Father truly is? How do we know we know? Are we rightly embracing his propitiation? Are we really growing in obedience? Are we truly looking more like Jesus. Well, as we close this out this morning, it's fitting for us to close this out in prayer. It's fitting for us to close this out in some time of self-examination before the Lord. And so I want to give you a few moments here this morning as we close out, just to take some time on your own with the Lord and to do some self-examination. 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you failed to meet the test? And so John is very bold. He just lays it out for you, a mirror to, to look at your life. But remember, we're looking to Jesus, who is our propitiation at the very start. So take some time right now. Bow your head before the Lord. And ask yourselves these questions. Am I rightly embracing his propitiation? Do I have a true and thorough understanding of what the gospel really is? Am I really growing in obedience? Is that true gospel actually producing transformation? And is there true fruit being produced as you walk in obedience? And then 30, am, am I truly looking more like Jesus. Just take a few moments 
and then I'll close in prayer.